This episode of Snow the Goalie is brought to you by Cinch by Amerigas. Oh yeah, oh yes. Listen, it's that time of year the grills are heating up, hockey's getting ready to come back, and there's no better time to get your propane delivered to you. Yes, I said delivered to you by our friends over at Cinch by Amerigas. You go over to cinch.com, put in the promo code ITSLIT5, that's I-T-S-L-I-T-5, and you can get a propane exchange for just $10. Yes, I repeat, $10. It's the cheapest price you will find anywhere. Instead of lugging that awful, disgusting, dirty propane tank to your local convenience store, nay, nay, let them do all the work for you. You just put that old, ugly, disgusting, wretched propane tank out front, out on your front porch, on your driveway, and the fine folks from Cinch by Amerigas, they'll come out, they'll swap it out for you for just $10. Use our promo code, it's lit 5 and also our friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. Don't forget to sign up today and use the promo code CROSSINGBROAD. Again, that's CROSSINGBROAD, one word. A fantastic sportsbook, the number one rated sportsbook in these United States. On today's episode, an absolute scorcher, a fantastic interview. One that you won't hear anywhere else with stories that you won't hear anywhere else. Because after all, this is the only Flyers podcast, Snow the Goalie, with the man, the myth, the legend, defenseman. Chris Pronger. And I know that Anthony was excited for this. I was excited for it. Anthony, did it live up to your hype? It absolutely did, Russ. I, you know, I kind of knew, you know, from my time covering Prongs as a player, um, just how he was with an interview. And so those were some of my favorite 10, 15 minutes uh, of every day that I was around the Flyers, whether it be a practice or uh, after a game, just because I knew that he was always going to speak his mind, be honest, um, and also, you know, be a little, you know, take jabs at people, uh, including us, including members of the media. He kept us sharp, kept us on our game. Like when I would go in there, you know, I would pre, I never pre-plan questions for guys, but mm -hmm. Chris Pronger, I learned to pre-plan questions for because he, if you asked it the wrong way, he jumped all over you. And, and it was done in a playful manner, right? I mean, it was not meant to be, um, uh, you know, derogatory in any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, if you asked a question that came out wrong or you didn't ask it in the right way, he was all over you for it. And he wrote a lot of media members. With it and, I, and I enjoyed it. I loved the give and take and the back and forth. So I knew when he agreed to come on uh, Snow the Goalie that we were looking at something that was going to be, gee, we're going to spend about an hour with Chris Pronger. Like, this is going to be pretty awesome, you know, that we're going to have him for that long. And yes, he absolutely lived up to uh, his reputation as being, a, you know, a blunt and honest guy and had some great, you know, anecdotes and, and uh, uh, interesting, uh, you know, takes on certain situations that occurred throughout his career, but especially when, you know, with his time here with the Flyers. Well, without further ado, we're going to get into it. Don't forget, on the backside, we'll react. And, of course, we have a little bit of news on the return of hockey and, and a rumor that was swirling around, especially over on Facebook groups, that hockey's not coming back until September, which we've got to certainly weigh in on. But before we get to anything else, here's the interview with former Flyers captain Chris Pronger. 
Hi, my name is Ali Vignon, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Niskanen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Farabee. Hi, it's Derek Grant. Hi, this is Bob Clark. You're, You're listening, listening to Snow the Goalie. 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 Oh, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome in to Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, the Players Podcast, the Prognosticators Podcast, the Presidential Podcast, the Pedialyte Podcast, the Pampers Podcast. We've called it the Probcast. We've called it the Cast. But no, no. Today, we have the biggest guest in Snow the Goalie history. We're going to call it the hashtag ProngerCast. Ladies and gentlemen, he is a four-time All-Star, a Norris Trophy winner a Hart Trophy winner, a four-time Olympian, two-time gold medalist, Stanley Cup champion, and a Hockey Hall of Famer, Chris Pronger. Good God! Good God! What a guest to have on Snow the Goalie. Here we go. Thanks for being here, Prongs. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, but we always start off, like, I, I love asking guys where they're from. A lot, of, a lot of you guys are from these real small towns that no one's ever heard of. These here, well, Dryden, Ontario, everybody just is going to assume, well, Ontario, it's got to be near Toronto, right? Well, wrong. Dryden is nowhere near Toronto. It's actually probably, you know, a little <laughs> bit closer to Winnipeg and a little bit closer to the Minnesota border. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Dryden, what that town's like when you grow up there? Yes, just a little bit closer to Winnipeg. I'm, four, <laughs> I'm three and a half hours from Winnipeg. Uh, I am 20 hours from Toronto, yeah. uh, two hours from the Minneapolis or uh, Minnesota border, <coughs> eight hours straight north of Minneapolis. Um, as I've used this terminology a lot, trying to describe where I'm from. I think uh, I usually say, do you know what the coldest place in the continental U.S. is? And people go, sometimes they know, sometimes they don't. International Falls, Minnesota. Right. Uh, and I am two hours north of there. So it's got to be even colder there. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so you guys probably had a uh, uh, backyard rink then, right? You and your older brother, Sean. Who also we played. actually had an outdoor rink. Uh, the town's outdoor rink was about a block and a half from our house, so we used to go up there all the time. That's awesome. And, uh, play with the you know kids from school, and uh, you know I used to obviously go up there and obviously play against a lot of older kids. So I think I think that kind of started me in. Uh, that competitive spirit and, and pushing myself against older kids to try to keep up and, and all the rest of that. And, uh, you know, it was a great place to, to learn the game and uh, learn, uh, learn some hard knocks along the way and toughen up. <laughs> That's good. Now, when, how did you, um, you know, start to get recognized? Obviously, you know, you were a, a top prospect for, for the OHL. Um, but what, you know, where, where was it when you first, or how old were you when you first realized that, geez, I might be able to, you know, do something here and, and make a, make a living out of this. Oh, I don't know about making a living out of it, but I think I left home when I was 15. Uh, that prior season, I played uh, high school hockey and we went down to uh, Kitchener to play in the All Ontario championships. And uh, there was a number of uh, junior scouts there that uh, I guess I caught the eye of. And uh, I went to play in Stratford which at the time was a pipeline uh, to the NCAA. Uh, they had a number of, uh, you know, Eddie Olchek and Rob Blake and a number of guys, Nelson Emerson, a number of guys had gone through that program. Um, so it was kind of a feeder system there and, and just uh, chose to go the, the OHL route uh, after uh, a lot of 
back and forth. My brother was already going to Bowling Green uh, uh, to play for the BGSU Falcons. And, um, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to follow him there, but I uh, had a lot of conversations with uh, different schools about, uh, you know, going to college and doing, doing that route instead of junior. But uh, at the end of the day, decided that it was best for my development to, to play junior and play that extended season. You know, I think at the time it was 72 games and, yeah. and obviously play against a lot of the guy, you know, that my first year uh, in junior, I got to play against Eric Lindros and um, learned how to uh, uh, really push myself against some of the, that top end, uh, you know, young talent. Well, there was a lot of controversy. I, I remember um, about you going to, uh, Peterborough, because I think you were originally thought to be like, like one of the top picks for the OHL draft. And then they just all assumed you were going the college route. And then you get, uh, I guess, Peterborough took you in like the sixth round uh, yeah. as, as a, taking a chance on you, quote unquote. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you go there. So people think that that was some kind of sandbag thing, but it really wasn't right. I mean, you really yeah, thought I, you were going to go to college. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I still, I still get that a lot. Okay. Uh, I think I was rated second overall in the OHL draft that year. And uh, had told everybody, including Peterborough, that I wasn't coming. Uh, it's funny that Sault Ste. Marie had two, two picks in the sixth round. And uh, uh, with their first pick, they took Chris DeRuiter. And then with their second pick, they were going to take me. And in between, Peterborough was picking and they took me. <laughs> <laughs> and then they convinced me to go and they brought me down. Oh, I wasn't quite this smooth with the media. I got a phone call from uh, Dick Todd. Uh, you know, my mom answers the phone. Hey, is uh, Chris there? Yes. Chris, phone's for you. I pick it up. Hello? Chris, is Dick Todd with Peterborough Pete's? We just drafted you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going, so I didn't think it was going to be, uh, you know, that big a deal. I mean, I was very soft-spoken back in those days. and. Uh, um, you know, they, they said they were going to fly me down to just check out the city and, and see the facilities and, and kind of talk to them about, uh, the team and the league and, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, I decided to go down for the 48 hours to, to training camp and, and see how it was. And then I never left. Now, uh, obviously, you have a, uh, a great career there, and, and you become a top prospect in, in the NHL. Um, but the one thing that I, I guess the most, one of the most famous lines ever, you know, you get drafted second overall by Hartford behind Alexander Daig, who says, you know, I'm glad I got picked number one because nobody remembers number two. <laughs> How did that end up playing out when you guys ended up playing together or playing against each other uh, in the NHL? His uh, ankles and his wrists were very sore. <laughs> uh, yeah, he got a few complimentaries off the face-off uh, as he tried to go wide. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. Now, we had uh, Dino, Kevin Deneen was on with us uh, about a month and a half ago, and he was talking a lot about Hartford, obviously, and um, how much he really enjoyed the, you know, the, that smaller town atmosphere and then playing in the mall. I mean, you were a young kid when you were there. What was that experience like for you? I know it was only a two-year thing there. It was kind of tumultuous for you, and, and then you ended up getting traded to St. Louis. But really, when you look back at it, what were those two years, and what did they mean to you uh, as, a, as a player? Uh, well, I think as a player and as a person, I, I, my first year there, I lived with a family, uh, the Crispins, who 
are great friends to me to this day. Uh, Bob uh, is like a second father to me. Um, you know, they were fantastic, great people to live with and, and really kind of took care of me and watched over me while I was there. Um, you know, and I think you, you look back on playing in a mall. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things about it where you're like, is this really the NHL? You know, but, um, you know, I think it, it might have eased my transition into the NHL in, in being a smaller city and, and kind of keeping me under wraps, so to speak. Uh, had I gone to L.A. or New York, who knows what would happen. But, uh, you know, you can get lost in the shuffle in those cities pretty easily. So, uh, you know, we had a great group of uh, veterans on the team. And, you know, we were, we were obviously <laughs> from ownership to the front office to everything that kind of was going on with, within the organization, uh, you know, and all the things that happened when I was there. Uh, there was a lot of things that, uh, you know, I'm sure people would, would want to take back. But, uh, you know, I think those ups and downs that you have early in your career like that can make or break uh, uh, how you turn out and, and really how you push through and, and, and overcome the different adversities and things that are presented to you. And, and you're going to have these forks in the road. Are you going to go right? Are you going to go left? What are you going to do? Uh, you know, so I think after my two years there, which, as you said, were a little tumultuous, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I think you have to, you know, take a, a deep look in the mirror and, and understand what type of player do you want to be? I think coming here to St. Louis and, and having Keenan as a coach and, and some of the veterans that we had here, uh, you know, and Al McGinnis and Holly and Fuhrer and Courtnell and, and, and uh, you know, Gretzky towards the end of that first year, I think really you get a better understanding of, okay, this is the, this is the big boy leagues here. You gotta, you gotta grow up and, and mature and, and come prepared to, uh, to play each and every night and, and, and leave it all on the ice. Well, that was going to be my next question. So, so Keenan's our guest next week, right? So I'm going to ask you a two-part question. One, what's he going to say it was like coaching you at 21 years old? And two, <laughs> and two, what was it like for you playing for him? Because his style was certainly a unique style. Yeah, you know, I, I think with Mike, you know, he's not a, a great X's and O's coach. He's a motivator. He's, uh, you know, I think with him – he wants to break you down and build you back up. You know, like he was obviously very, very hard on me when I first got there. Uh, but, you know, he had obviously traded a fan favorite for me. So he had a lot of pressure on himself too. So I, I, I certainly get it. And, and being 20 when I first got there and, and uh, you know, being booed, <laughs> you know, from the stories to the being booed to the pressure to the, you know, there, there was a lot going on and, and obviously his relationship with Holly and, and with the city and everything that was kind of going on in that respect, uh, you know, they, the city was taking some of these trades very personally. And, and uh, you know, I think the, the riffs kind of started, started seeing some cracks in the armor and, um, you know, but I think from, from my perspective in, in my development, very hard on me obviously as we know Mike's big into physical fitness and 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 all that stuff so I think that certainly helped my career and my trajectory in in trending in the right direction and 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 playing to the best of my ability um you know I think the first probably five months I was here in St. Louis uh I was Mike's 
bitch, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> I was in his office every day getting yelled at. I was in there in between periods. I was in there, you know, and he was very hard on me. And, you know, I was in his office after practice. I'm going to trade you and, you know, all the rest of that stuff. Uh, you know, I think motivating, as as we said, is kind of his MO. And he tries to push buttons and, and he, he, he figures out, what type of person you are, how you're going to push back. You know, obviously I told, you know, like everybody else that's played for him, they tell you, hey, just tell him F off. Yeah. So, first games, you know, I started playing and he'd come down, he's pinching you, he's kicking you, he's, you know, doing all the stuff that he does to get you going. And, you know, he starts screaming at me one day and I turn around, tell him to F off. And he kind of looks at me and, He's like, don't you talk to me like that. I go, no, screw you. <laughs> we start getting it. I mean, if you look at the bench, you know, that that the couple years I was there, uh, when he was there, I mean, if you see, there's a lot of players with their heads turned back like this. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I think he liked it. He liked the passion. He liked, you know, firing the team up and getting guys going. And, and he wanted to see you respond and be like, oh, yeah, screw you. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something. Right. Right. Well, so I, I guess, you know, based off that, you know, you, you kind of became, uh, you know, as you grew into being a, a great leader in the NHL with every team that you were with, you kind of became known as a guy who would hold your teammates accountable much in the same way with, I mean, maybe not being abusive, but very, be very direct and, uh, you know, with them in the locker room. Do you think that that stemmed from, you know, seeing how it was successful with Mike or no, do you think that comes no, out? No, I, I was always like that. Okay. I, I was always, even at a young age, it's I, I, I hold myself to a high standard and, uh, and you know, it, it, I'm the one that's accountable as a leader, as uh, supposed one of the best players in the team. The media is looking at me and the fans are looking at me and the ownership's looking at me and the GM's looking at me and the coach is looking at me like, you need to do your job. In order for me to do my job, it's a team game. They need to do their job. And you know, so you got to practice a certain way and, and prepare a certain way to be able to have that translate onto the ice so you can be as best as you possibly can and win hockey games, which is what we're being paid to do. So, uh, you know, it, it was, you know, I, I didn't ask anything of my teammates that I wasn't willing to do. You know, it's not like I was doing one thing and they were doing another thing. I was actually doing more than they were. I was just trying to get them to to understand the magnitude of, each season, it's such a short, a short career, and when you have a good team and you have an opportunity to win, you have to take advantage of it. So you, you ended up bringing up something that I wanted to get to later, but now is about as good of time as ever. So you weren't afraid to be outspoken as a young player and held guys accountable your entire career. One of the, the biggest stories, I think, when you were in Philadelphia was a dust-up that happened with Claude Giroux, at least the way that it was reported by San Filippo. It's all his fault. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. It was just me. I, I, I do want to ask you. They had, a, they had a glass to the door like this. <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Honestly, I think at this, at this point, you could give Anthony spy technology, and he's still going to go with, like, the two little cups in the string. So yeah, it's exactly. Um, what happened? Uh, I was playing, so here's how it played out. I was playing with a broken hand and, you know, we're trying to, we just come off playing in the Stanley cup finals and, and learning how to play the game and learning how to win. And I'm playing with a broken hand and we're winning 
3-1 or 4-1 against Edmonton. There's like eight minutes left in the game. And G gets a puck. I'm going to go change. And he turns a puck over at the red line. All he had to do was get it in. I'm yelling, I need to change. And he didn't. He turned it over. Taylor Hall comes zooming or no, somebody comes racing. I don't think he played. Somebody else comes racing back down. Now I'm mad because he didn't get it in. He, you know, we're trying to learn how to win here. The guy comes down on me. I punch him with my glove. My hand just explodes. And now I'm pissed off and my hand's sore. And I start, now I get the puck back. I get it out. And now I'm screaming at him as I'm on, on the bench. I'm screaming at him like, get the puck in deep. God damn it. You know, whatever. <laughs> and and uh, so then the game's over. We win. We're in the locker room. And he's walking out and I'm walking out. He's like, hey, I want to talk to you. I go, yeah, what's up? He's like, I didn't appreciate you yelling at me. I go, well, then get the fucking puck in. <laughs> I go, you don't want to be yelled at. We're trying to win. Like, he's like, well, you didn't have to sing at me all like that. I go, why not? Why didn't you get it in? And we just, you know, we had a conversation. We had a conversation. <laughs> there was nobody yelling. There was nobody <laughs> losing their marbles. It was a conversation. He's like, well, I just want you to, uh, you know, show a little bit more respect for me and just pull me aside and talk to me. I said, okay, if that's the way you want it, then sure. So it happened to be right in front of the door as the media is standing there. Yep. And then I don't think anything. I would just I go, okay, gee, whatever. And, you know, just kind of walk in and ice my hand and do whatever. And all of a sudden, there's mutiny in the locker room. <laughs> oh, the players are fighting with each other. And, oh, my God, Drew and Pronger had a knockdown drag out. And I'm like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and I'm just like. Okay, are yeah. our teammates not allowed to talk to one another? Are they not allowed exactly. to have conversations? And it's not all going to be, oh, hey, listen, I wish you would have got the puck in there. It's not <laughs> how it works. And I'm, my hand's blowing up, and it's swollen, and I'm mad and tough. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Oh, also, and then, and by the way. And then yes, keep go. it going. Don't stop. <laughs> No, but years years later, G calls me and he's like, hey, you know, this is kind of going on. I go, well, you know what to do, G. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold, him, hold him accountable. Hey. That's right. Well, it, it's, it's the progression. That's Who is he right. calling about? Uh, no, I'm don't just, go. I'm don't just let's, hold on. I'll text you. so it's funny that you're talking about like leadership qualities because you become captain in st louis in your third year and i remember you telling me that at first you you hated it um and this was something when we were talking about the um the issues that mike was having with the media you know as when he was captain um back in you know during that 2010 season um but you had said that at first you you didn't really like it and and that you kind of had to learn you know, how to, how to kind of be, you know, ham, handle the media, be more gregarious, be more forthright with us. And, and then, you know, also, you know, be disengaging, but also hold us accountable for answer, asking the right questions and, you know, the, the certain way. When did it, when did it really kind of sink in for you? Cause I know you said it was a, a struggle at first in St. Louis. Yeah. I think just because of everything that was going on with Mike and then, you know, obviously, Al was going into the final year of his contract. Holly was going into the final year of his contract. Jeff Cortland was going into the final year of his contract. And I had, I think, four years left or whatever it was. So they were like, well, let's, he's captain material. Let's give him the C right now. And 
when you have those types of leaders in the locker room and, and you take over as a young captain, sometimes it doesn't go over very well. <laughs> and, you know, and it, not that they didn't respect the way I played and respect me as a player, but I think, you know, being 23 years old, especially back then, the league was a lot older. Uh, you know, I think sometimes it's a tough pill for guys to swallow. And, um, you know, it, you know, a lot of those guys are married and they got kids and they got their own lives and I'm young and single and I'm just doing my thing. And, and you, you don't necessarily have your finger on the pulse of the team. You're just, you're, you're leading by example on the ice and, and leading by example in the locker room. And then, you know, I think sometimes I was taking offense that they were taking control of the room, you know, on, on that other side that they had much more experience in. And I think I learned as I went that the captain can't do everything. The captain can't be the one, all, the end all be all for everything. It, it, it's it, it because it's a team and an organization and, it takes more than one guy, you know, there's the, the so-called captain and then there's the assistants and you don't have to have a letter on your Jersey to be a leader. Um, and I think sometimes that gets overplayed. Oh, he's the captain and oh, he's this. It, it, to some degree it's immaterial, but, but to your point, when you're dealing with the media, when you're, you're dealing with all that, I think sometimes, you know, because I'm sarcastic, and I, I lack tact, <laughs> I can be a little too much, too blunt, that I think sometimes when, as a young player that comes off either unprofessional or uh, to the media, when they're asking dumb questions, you're giving them a dumb response. And then they're looking at you like, well, why is he being that? Meanwhile, they don't think about the question they just asked. They don't think about how dumb it was. And you know, I think as you get older and you get a little bit more relationship with the media and you, you have that give and take and that back and forth, you can then do that. But as a young player, especially in a league, as I mentioned, that was very old, um, there wasn't a lot of young captains. There wasn't a lot of young players in the league, period. So 23, at 23, you're still a young player back then. Now you're a fossil. <laughs> so... Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I think it's just a maturation process and, and, and learning and, and creating relationships, just like, uh, you know, playing in the games and on the ice with the referees, fostering relationships and, and getting to know them and, and learning how they referee games and how they, how they interact, how you can talk to them. Some guys, you got to talk different than others. And, and it's the same with the media, um, you know, certainly, but, uh, you know, when you find something that works, uh, you know, I think, the media appreciated that I wasn't just going to give them the stock cliche and then be quiet and let you go. I mean, I'm going to give you an answer. And if you don't like it, tough luck. <laughs> I do want to ask you about that. So you'd mentioned that sometimes your style rub people the wrong way. So in Anthony's usually Mr. Research and I, I happen to do just a little bit of digging and back in 08, Ken Armour wrote a piece for Bleacher Report titled Chris Pronger, not captain material for the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, could you kind of go Ooh. over Ken Armour? Who's that? So Ken Armour was a guy for Bleach Report who said, you know, that he didn't think that you were captain material for the Anaheim Ducks. Um, I think because of the way that um, some things had gone down with a, a stomp of a... No. Of a oh, the Kessler, <laughs> yeah. Kessler thing. Yeah. Kessler thing. And so... <laughs> 
like that to me, I, I'm not. What's that got to do with anything? Well, I, he, I, the way that it was kind of interpreted seemed to be that, you know, your leadership style might not have meshed with the Anaheim locker room, that you weren't a good representation of what an Anaheim duck was supposed to be, which obviously is nonsense because you were a captain everywhere. So how do you respond to somebody who goes and puts out an inflammatory headline like that? Like, I know a lot of times guys say, I don't read what people write. I don't read the headlines. I got to be honest but- with you. I, I never heard, I never saw that, but I, Anthony can tell you, I, I never, I learned in St. Louis. Don't watch. I didn't watch the local media. I didn't read the paper. I didn't, I don't want to walk into the locker room and hold a grudge against somebody who wrote an article that most likely doesn't know what they're talking about or isn't in the locker room or doesn't know the intricacies of the Giroux incident or of, and what transpired and, and, and all that. And, and by the way, it's none of their business anyways. Mm-hmm. So for instance, I'll give you an example. I'm, we're in Minnesota and there's a reporter in there and he's looking for Tamu and I'm screwing around with one of the media and I start yelling at him. I'm screwing around, uh, but I'm yelling at him. Like I'm, I give him the wink and I'm like, watch this. And this guy walks in and he goes to talk to Tamu and Tamu being Tamu talks to this guy for like an hour and a half. <laughs> and I get up, I go shower. And once I get up, the guy, the, the media guy goes to the other guy goes, Oh my God, you let him talk to you like that. What an asshole. <laughs> and, and the guy's like, he was kidding. Yes. <laughs> but like, but perception and, you know, they see the way you play on the ice. So they think that's the way you're going to be and on and on. It just, uh, you know, it, you either play up to it or you just let it roll off your back and, and don't really uh, worry about it too much. I mean, you, you, and we were, you know, I mentioned this earlier, you were, uh, that was, I mean, look how far Saravalli's gotten, right? And he's now working for TSN. He's doing really well. It's great for Frankie. Um, but he was in his, just starting his second year in Philadelphia. He was still 21 years old as a reporter and he had to deal with you. And it, uh, you were, you would constantly break his balls constantly. <laughs> and you would tell us before you were going to do it, that you were going to break his balls. <laughs> like that, that's kind of like the relationship that if you're there every day and you build these yeah. relationships with players that we yeah. kind of get it but you know guys who come in for these one-off stories yeah. and they see it they don't understand that that's kind of part of the give and take right exactly well i was just like you're gonna like like when i first got to philly i sat down with each each writer and i said listen you're gonna get your stories you're gonna get your access you're gonna get to talk to me if you ever misquote me i'm never talking to you again that's it mm-hmm. it's that simple and there was one guy that did and i said get him out of here i'm not talking until he's out of here <laughs> so sorry yeah you were told don't misquote me yeah exactly so. exactly um i don't want to gloss over edmonton and anaheim because those were those were important years for you um obviously you go to edmonton for the one year coming out of the lockout and you take a, a team you know you help get that team to the stanley cup final as an eight seed um before losing and then the next year you go to anaheim and obviously you guys win the cup there um, can you, can you just kind of wrap up just quickly, um, what those two experiences were like? Cause I know that they were two completely different experiences for you. Um, because it's, it's, it's funny to think that a player of your caliber m- went from played for so many different teams in such a short period of time, like why you kept getting moved. It just didn't never made sense to me. Um, well, I think 
St. Louis at the time, you know, I think moving from St. Louis to Edmonton, um, you know, they were selling the team. They were, you know, whatever. That's immaterial. But uh, when I got to Edmonton, I'm glad. I'm glad I got to play in Canada, and especially uh, with that group of guys and, and that team. You know, it wasn't certainly wasn't easy in the beginning. Obviously, playing in Canada and the magnitude of spectacle of being in Canada, and you know, we had expectations and the trades that they made there. You know, I had played with the head coach, Craig McTavish in St. Louis. You know, I played, obviously played against Kevin Lowe my first couple of years when I was pro. Uh, played against Craig, you know, so a lot of Charlie Huddy was, I played as, he was my partner in St. Louis. So a lot of the coaching staff and management I played with or against. Uh, and then, um, you know, we were a fairly young team. You know, we felt on the rise and, um, you know, I think, that whole run we went on and the way that the city kind of rallied around the team and how crazy the, the screen you know, electric air blue ab or whatever we called it. I can't remember, but, uh, it was, it was crazy how the, the city rallied and, um, you know, I fortunate enough to be a part of it and, and certainly, uh, was, was awesome. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to be a part of it. You know, it sucks that we, uh, losing a game seven with, the. Uh, with everything that transpired there, but you live and learn and, and, and fortunate enough to a get traded to Anaheim and, and, and knowing the type of team that they had and the style of play that, that they like to play and, and having Berkey there and, and, and understanding what I was brought in to do and, and the, the mindset and the goal of the team from the outset of when I got traded there throughout that whole season was it's Stanley cup. We're here to win a Stanley Cup. That's it. Anything less is is unacceptable. And everything we did throughout the course of the year was to win a Stanley Cup. And and uh, how close of, of a group that team was. And you know, every day we'd have lunch together. And and you know, all the different things that uh, people kind of take for granted with teams. And and you know, there's all kinds of different personalities and all kinds of different um ideologies and, and the way people act and and see things but when you have a group of guys like that that come together from from the ownership to the management to the coaching staff to the players everybody was on the same page um you know you're able to have that type of success and um you know we we still all talk once in a while and and it's uh you know you have that bond with one another for a long long time much like as as we know with the seventy four uh, yeah. flyers and seventy five flyers, it's uh, you know they they get it, they it, understand. Well, one of the things that's come out since then is that you almost it, that trade almost didn't happen because you almost went to Toronto instead. Do you ever think what would have happened, how your career arc might have changed if you ended up in Toronto at that time instead of Anaheim? Yeah, it uh, it's funny how. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I remember Kevin kind of walking me through a couple of different trades, and uh, he would have taken the he would have taken the the Toronto trade had they put Steen in instead of Stajan. And uh, you know, it's funny that then half a year later they then trade Steen to to St. Louis. So <laughs> <laughs> who knows why how things happen? And and you know, I guess you know that's that's just the way things work out. 
you know, they worked out great for me in the sense that uh, I was able to go to a, a great organization and a great team and, and win a Stanley Cup. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think when you, when you look at the, the trades and, you know, Edmonton wanted to get a veteran leader, Anaheim wanted to get that missing piece, and, you know, and I think Philly was in the same boat back then uh, when Homer made the trade. Well, I was going to ask you that. Like, I mean, you know, you look at the, where the Flyers, the progression leading up to your arrival. 07, they were the worst team in hockey, but they had a, good, a lot of good young players. Homer turns it around pretty quick. 08, they reach the conference final. 09, they lose uh, early in the playoffs, but I kind of felt like there were a lot of injuries that year, and that team was, was certainly on the come with, you know, with Mike and Jeff and, and so forth, um, and Danny uh, and Simone. And then, you know, they trade for you. When you're coming to the Flyers – at that point, do you look at that team and, and you know and, and assess it and say, "Yeah, I, I think this team is 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 close, and and that this could you know you going there could make the difference." You know, I think because I was in the West virtually the whole my whole career, other than the two years in in Hartford, I didn't really know a lot about them. You know, obviously played against them a couple times, but I didn't really know a lot about a, a number of the players that were there. Um, you know, obviously, new chemo and and Hartsey and a few players, but having played against them when they were in Nashville, but uh, I didn't know a lot about Cartsey and and Mike and um, a lot of the players that were there. So it was, you know, they didn't know me, I didn't know them. So it was a matter of getting to know them a little bit and and kind of coming in. I knew Lappy when, so you know, having played with them a little bit here in St. Louis, and then obviously against them a long time. Uh, so a lot of the players that were there, I'd either played against a long time, well, but didn't really know them, and uh, <clears throat> and then just didn't know the guys. So it was probably a, a lot of feeling out early on and, and understanding. You know, I think a lot of people thought I was coming in to steal Mike's thunder. I don't know how you know, and you know, I was there to try to help him and and help us win, really. Well, let's talk about that for a second because I think one of the one of the misnomers was that there was a a frothy relationship between the two of you, and and it wasn't it never existed. Like you and Mike got along really well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, it's the same thing, and and you know what? He was in the exact same position I was in when I got to St. Louis. Right. You know where yeah you know you've got a veteran leader and chemo chemo. I'm there. You know, you go through the the list of of guys and with Lappy and myself and chemo. And then you got Mike and Jeff and, and you're like, okay, I understand exactly what you're going through as a young captain, the media scrutiny and the pressure and all that stuff. I'm like, I know exactly what you're going through. I'm here, man. I can, I can help you. If you have ever have any questions, if you ever want to talk about anything, I'm here. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, Mike's, different kid in that in that sense he internalizes a lot of things and and he's a bit of an introvert in that respect and and beats to his own drummer and kind of does his own thing and some people look at that in a bad light and some people look at that as he doesn't care some people you know and that's just his personality you mm -hmm. know and i think people have if you're not necessarily the outgoing gregarious i'm going to talk to the media or i'm just going to sit there and I don't want to talk to the media, but I'll answer your questions. I'm going to give you a yes or no, and then I'm going to leave. Are there <laughs> and you can go one way or the other. Right. Are there parallels that you could see based on the, the way that you just responded that between how Mike Richards is in the locker room versus Claude Giroux? Because Giroux and a, a lot of uh, year after year, groups of fans, people in the media, 
kind of question, some question Hart and some question the fact that he doesn't seem to be a vocal leader on the team. It's all, often talked about the fact that he's very soft-spoken. Are there any similarities between the two, or are we still talking about like two very different kinds of maybe introverted or quiet guys? Well, I think they're different in the sense that, you know, I, I don't think Mike necessarily liked talking to the media. Actually, I know he didn't. You know, he, <laughs> yeah. he didn't like that part of the job. Yeah. You know, he just wanted to play hockey and, and win hockey games. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why when I talked about earlier, when you have a leadership group, like Scotty was very quiet. You know, I would be in the locker room talking. And, and you have these different personalities and they all got to mesh together. Um, you know, but you're not stepping on each other. You know, people, people always say, well, isn't that his job? Well, there's all kinds of different jobs and all kinds of different leaders and all kinds of pieces to the puzzle. And you're not stepping on one another's toes. You're helping one another. That's, that's what, that's yeah. what a teammate is for. And you know, Mike is a quiet leader and, and a lead by example and a heart and soul type of guy. And you get these different pieces, just like G, while he may not be boisterous in the media, shows passion in the locker room and shows passion on the ice with his compete and the way he plays the game. Everybody leads in their own way and people want to force captains and leaders into leading in a way that they're not comfortable with, in a way that they don't, that's not how they do things. And you can't pigeonhole a guy into, this is the way Bobby Clark did it, so you got to do it that way, or this is the way Chris Pronger did it, or this is the way this guy. You have to be yourself. And I think that's one of the biggest things I told G when he, when he became captain, is I go, dude, you got to be yourself. You can't, you can't kowtow to the media and have them force you into doing something that you're not comfortable with. And, and, acting a certain way that that's not you you have to be um very cognizant of who you are how you lead how you play the game and and do it to the best of your abilities so that you're having success and therefore they can't question you because if you have success and you win then you're a great leader but if you don't win you're a shitty leader mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple that's how that's how the media looks at it and and, to, and for lack thereof, that's how fans look at it. If you're not winning, you're a shitty leader because you get blamed for everything, which is why I always want to help my teammates accountable to a certain standard. I was here and I would hold them here because I know that they might not be able to get to that level. Right. But you got to push them to get better and push them to be better so that you can have success because if you don't – in a team sport, if they are not playing to a certain level – I'm getting the blame for it because I'm the leader. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people take umbrage with that, but that's the facts and that's the truth. I don't know if this is of, of interest to you or not, but the, the, not. The, okay. <laughs> the, um, the, the Michael Jordan documentary that, that kind of took Loved it. the country by, Loved so you watch it. it. So yeah. what you're talking about of, you know, that your talent is at this level and, and a lot of guys on the team aren't going to be able to rise to that ceiling. When you want, went back and watched that, do you feel like there, there were times that the, the way that he might have been misunderstood by the media and the way that he was trying to push his, his teammates is similar to what, what you're talking about? To, to us, I mean, I saw a lot of parallels, um, you know, not quite to that level, but I mean, certainly a lot of parallels in, in, in how 
um, you take offense to certain things and you, you, you know, I held a lot of grudges and I use those slights, whether it's from the media, from opposing coaches, players, you know, teammates, whatever, you use that to push you on any given day or you use, you know, this guy's going to embarrass you. So you you dig deep and you're like, he not, you know, he's not doing that tonight. Or you're watching highlights and you're like, okay, you're, you're using all kinds of different things to motivate and push yourself to be the best you can be. And it's a long grind of a season. You got to find stuff much, much like Michael Jordan was using different slights to, or made up different slights to, to push himself. It's a long grind of a season and, and you get tired and there are certain times where you're like, okay, you, you just got to dig deep and you got to find something that's going to piss you off to get you motivated and get you going when you're in an interconference game that means nothing really, but you know, it, you gotta, you gotta man up and, and, and push yourself to, to be the, the best you could be on that given night. And, and sh- somebody's buying a ticket somewhere to either watch you or watch your team or watch the other team. And they expect to see a good show. Now in that, in that 09, 10 season that you guys make the, the great run to the final, um, that regular season was kind of up and down, right? It was, it was a roller coaster, certainly. Um, but I, and that, you know, that was the whole thing where, you know, where Mike was having an issue with us as the media, et cetera, et cetera. How much did you guys going away, winning the gold medal, kind of take a lot of that pressure off of him? Because I really think that that, after that, it seemed like it was a, a different animal with that team moving forward and then into the playoffs. And you guys finally realized that, you know what, maybe we can win this thing. Uh, even towards the end of the regular season there. I mean, I know it came down to the last game, but I really kind of felt like there was a different vibe in that locker room after you guys came back from, from the Olympics? Yeah, I think, I think just being around that group and, and, and seeing how that team came together, I think, I think really helped, uh, you know, seeing how different leaders lead and, and seeing, you know, how Scotty was a leader and seeing how the different guys in the team, you know, there was probably 12 captains that were on the team, maybe more, mm-hmm. you know, so you're, you're looking around at how different guys lead and, and how guys defer and who answers what and who does it. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a group and a team effort all the time. And I, you know, when you're in those environments, you can learn an awful lot and, and you, you stockpile it all. And you kind of, you're able to kind of dissect it when you're done and kind of see what, what worked and what didn't work and what you liked and what you didn't like. And why did this guy do that? And, and you start kind of thinking about all the different things and, and understanding how the pieces of the puzzle fit. And you're like, okay, yeah, maybe I should try this. And I think this is going to work well. And, uh, you know, I think from, from then on, you know, when you have success like that, you, you gain confidence and, and you feel, okay, we came together as a group and we're, we're able to overcome some of the adversity that we had and, and we got better and we saw the chemistry and, and the success of our team go like this. And I think, you know, we did bring some of that back to, to our team. Danny told us that we had Danny Breer on last week. He said to us that when you're down 3 to Boston, that there was a real a legitimate belief in the locker room that you guys could win four in a row. Usually teams are just like, hey, let's win one to save face. And then, you know, okay. And you, you're kind of done. But like, he felt like last that that team was really looked at it and said, we can win four straight games against this team. Can you, can you kind of address that as well from your perspective? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we go in the locker room after game one. We felt like we played good enough to win. 
they got a couple breaks. We go in, we'd go in the locker room after game two. We felt like we could have won that game. You know, it wasn't like we were being outplayed. We go in the locker room after game three. We felt like we could have won that game. And, and you're just like, okay, we're, we're, we're just not, A, getting the breaks. We're not getting the bounce. We're not getting – we got to stick with it. Like, it's going to – we're going to get to this team. We're going to get to them. And I don't think any – to me, I didn't sense frustration. There might have been some in the media, and, and, and I told the guys I've been down 3 nothing before, been down 3-1, been down – like, we just – you got to just focus on that next game. Don't feel like we've got to win four right away. You got to win that next game, but we're right there. Like any of those three games could have went for us. We could have been up three, nothing. So it wasn't like we were being outplayed and it was men against boys and, and it was total domination. We were uh, right there lock and step with them and, and felt like actually we felt like we outplayed them. So we weren't, I don't think we were concerned. It was just a matter of us getting breaks and getting that one bounce, which we ultimately did. We got that fourth game in overtime, and then we kind of just slowly, you know, chipped away at it, gained confidence, got that fifth game in Boston, come back, win game six. And then we're like, all right, now we're here. It's the best of one. <laughs> best of one, let's go. And, uh, you know, we, we got off to a slow start, down three zip, and then, uh, you know, we got to plug, our, plug away and, and chip away at that lead. And, Ultimately, uh, Simone gets that big power play goal, and, and we get the victory. As a, go ahead, Russ. As a competitor in Game 7, the way that you go down 3-0, three, three and you're looking out in the stands, and you see the, these disgusting Boston fans losing their <laughs> minds. They're absolutely over the moon. They think they're going to the Stanley Cup. Are you tunnel vision at that point where you're not noticing it? Are you human where you do notice it? And at the end, after you know that you've now flipped the whole thing, the energy's out of the arena and you sent them home crying, do you get some, some kind of pleasure in that? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I think watching uh, Squirm, uh, you know, the fans and how boisterous and vocal and how they uh, scream, screamed and yelled and the different profanities, et cetera, much like our Philly fans. But, um, you know, I, I think just when you're in that environment and, and you're written off, oh, we're up 3 nothing, this is over, da, da, da. And then you come back and win, you're, listen, <laughs> we've seen it happen not very often, but when it does happen, there's always somebody that said something or did something that, I remember we, we, uh, when I was in St. Louis, we were down 3-1 to Phoenix, and one of their guys came by the bench and, and did the go golf swing. And like, oh, you guys will be golfing soon. We come back and win, and we're like, that was it. You pissed us off enough that, that was, we were not losing to you guys. <laughs> and we were going to do anything to beat you guys. And there are certain things where, you know, whether it's a fan saying something or a media saying something or what have you that galvanizes the team and the group and, um, you know, I think for us, it was just a matter of, as as you said, the belief in the room was that we weren't being outplayed. We shouldn't be losing to this team. And and it's up to us in that room and, and on the ice to to go prove it. You still have the uh, pucks you stole from the finals? I, I do. I have one. I have okay. one. The, sec the first game I threw it in the garbage, and the second game it's sitting right over here on my desk. <laughs> so who, now, has, who has game six? 
Good question. I was on the bench. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but was it, so when, when you go back and, and think about that, was, was that really just a tactic to kind of distract? Like you were you you didn't mind having the attention on you because obviously we were all going to write about it and talk about it, but you didn't mind having that attention on you to kind of take a little bit of pressure off of everyone else uh, in in the locker room, or was it just done to try and play a mental game with the Blackhawks or both? Uh, I was just trying to piss them off, really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I I didn't necessarily think it was going to gain the national attention that that it did, but uh, you know, really, I was just trying to piss them off and. You know, knowing, you know, when you see different things happen and, and they're showing all the video of them with their puck board doing all this stuff, I'm like, well, if we lose a game, I'm not giving them puck. Why, why do they get it? Yeah. When you win a game, you don't win the puck. <laughs> it's not their puck. It's, it's the league's puck. That's right. That's right. So it's just as much mine as, as it is theirs. <laughs> um, I, I know we're getting to the end here. Uh, a couple years, there's one thing I did, did want to ask, you know, a couple years later is when you, you know, you had your injury um, and, and, you know, kind of uh, ended your career. But uh, I heard you say in another interview um, that you felt like things would have been different in that locker room uh, with Briz as the goalie if you were able to be in that locker room more that, that season. Can, can you kind of talk about that? Because like, I think that one of the reasons that there was a little bit of a downfall for the Flyers really just stemmed from, you know, the, the Briz implosion, I guess, with, you know, in Philly. Um, but I know that you kind of addressed it, but I just want to see if you can dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, I just think having been with him in, in Anaheim and won with him there as the backup and, and, you know, listen, he's a different bird. But I think so, watching him on TV – point at defensemen, point at this guy, blame this guy, put his hands up, do all this stuff, that would have been taken care of very quickly. Mistakes happen, stop the puck. Shut your mouth and stop the puck. Yeah. That's what you're paid to do. And, you know, I think he, I think, played into the Philly media early and loved this, the attention and, this, and, and the notoriety. And ultimately that was his downfall because then, as we know, Philly with goalies, Yep. It's, it's, it's build up and it's a quick fall and you know, you got to do your job. You got to stop the puck. And it's one thing to get out there and start running your mouth in the media and blaming people and doing this. I mean, I'm reading articles and he's blaming this guy for this and this guy for that. I'm like, dude, your job's to stop the puck. Stop blaming people. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. And you know, not being there and not able to, you know, when you're not playing, it's hard to walk in and tell guys what to do and, and I certainly wasn't going to do it. Um, having, you know, not being able to play and be there and be like, hey, shut your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Stop yeah. the puck and, and shut your mouth. The, um, go ahead. The, the summer before, so you're, you're getting done Stanley Cup run. And then it's not, it's not all that much longer until uh, one of the bigger moves, I think, in, in the history of the Flyers happens. And the trades are made of both Mike Richards and Jeff Carter. We had Peter Luco was on, and he, he talked about the hockey side of, of why they made those decisions. And Danny said that he was surprised that they moved on from both of those players, uh, you know, within hours. From your vantage point as a leader in that locker room, were you surprised at all? Were you consulted at all? Like, were you, was there anything about that that surprised you to see the team move on from both of those young players who seem to be, you know, set up to be cornerstones of the franchise. 
Uh, yeah, I think everybody in the team was surprised. Uh, no, I was not consulted, nor should I be. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my job. Um, you know, I think uh, too often we think players are involved in all these types of moves. Oh, did they consult the captain, Mike Richards, on this trade? And oh, did they? No, your job's to play hockey. That's it. You, they might ask you about players. It doesn't mean they're going to be trading for them. They might ask you, well, what about this guy? What about this guy? Coaches ask you and GM, the GM asks you and the assistant GM asks you and the scout asks you. They're just gathering information sometimes. It's not always necessarily about, oh, we're going to trade for this guy. You know, they're getting, they're, they're building out their scouting books and doing all these different things. And, and now that I'm on the other side, I see that. You're, asked quite, you're always asking questions to players about certain guys and, you know, maybe the guy's a free agent in two years. Maybe, you know, you're just constantly adding stuff to, to, to the Rolodex and into, into your book. Um, but, you know, was it odd? I, I, you know, I think you look at the salary cap, you look at where we were, you look at the young players you get back, you get Jake Voracek and Sean Couturier, you get uh, Wayne Simmons and Braden Shen and a draft pick. You know, people think, oh, people think that, that Jeff Carter was traded to L.A. No, he was traded to Columbus. Columbus yeah. <laughs> they yeah. then traded him to L.A. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like we didn't give him both players. Um, you know, so I think you look at the return. Would our team have been different with those two in the lineup? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Would, would the wake-up call that Jeff Carter got have happened if he would have stayed in Philly? I don't know. You know, I think if you were to talk to him, I think he learned a lot about how good he had it in Philly versus when he got to Columbus and didn't appreciate it, didn't like it. And then he got to L.A. and, you know, they had a, a good young team and were on the rise and were right there. And, you know, it, when things happen like that, it, having been traded a number of times, it's, it's a wake-up call. You're like, okay, I got traded from Hartford to, to, uh, St. Louis, to St. Louis. And I'm like, holy shit. Welcome to the NHL, you know, and then I get traded to Edmonton, I get traded to Adam, and then I get traded to Philly. I mean, A, when you get in those trades, when teams are giving up that much, you're like, okay, I'm wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 somebody likes you in that organization because they're giving up, you know, in my, my case, they gave up two firsts and two players who were first-round picks. So they're, they're moving some significant assets to get you because they like what you do and like how you play the game. and want you for a specific role um you know and and you you know in in a couple of the cases i mean edmonton i asked to be traded but anaheim they bob wanted to build a team a certain way he wanted to get younger he wanted to put his own mark on the team and moving me was just the way for him to do that but last thing for me chris um I wanted to ask you how you know what it's like being on the other side. Now, now you're working for the Florida Panthers, um, uh, kind of as a uh, I guess your senior advisor to hockey operations. Is that the official title? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, what's it what, What's it like now being on the other side? I, mean, I know I got an opportunity uh, when you were still here in Philly. Um, I know you were doing a little bit of scouting and stuff to to be when we were doing that behind the scenes thing um, to be in the room uh, with you and and, and the whole group when you were talking about drafting players but now you're looking at it from an even broader view right where you look at the entire team and not just you know young players that you're scouting what's that been like for you and do you enjoy it and and where do you see it taking you uh yeah it's been fun you know I think you know I've obviously learning from Dale and and having access to to his knowledge and and 
how he builds teams and kind of that overarching view of amateur scouting, pro scouting, contracts, uh, player development, you know, basically I touch on everything and, and able to, you know, you know, I'm not doing budgets and things like that, but I'm able to kind of really get a deep dive into hockey operations and how, how things work, what works and what doesn't work, you know, and able to look back on teams that I played for and what worked and didn't work and, and how you put the, you know, I always go back to it, pieces of the puzzle. I mean, it's, it's a chessboard, so to speak, in the sense that you're finding personalities and, and different players at different cross sections of, of their careers and, and how they connect together and how they can come together to, to form that best team to, to ultimately win. I mean, a lot needs to happen in order to win in this league. <laughs> you need to get lucky. You need to have a hot goalie. You need to have, uh, you know, players get peaking at the right time and, and playing their best hockey and all. I mean, there's so many different things that have to culminate together to, to win in this league now because there's so much parity that uh, a lot of things have to go right for you. But do you look at this as something that you want to do long-term and, and maybe even go further than just being an advisor? Yeah. I mean, ultimately it would be nice, but um, you know, I think it, it would have to be the right opportunity and the right fit to, to do that. It's uh, it, it's a, a big commitment. It's a 24, seven, 365 job. And, and for me to, to want to do that, it's got to be the right fit. I think it's going to happen someday. Just, just my prediction. <laughs> Well, listen, Frogs, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for a great hour of conversation. Uh, always a pleasure. Hopefully we get to see you at a rink sometime soon, you know, uh, you know when we're all allowed back down there. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, like I said, all the best to, to you. And, appreciate and, uh, it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. You bet. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Chris Pronger. What a guy. What a guy. That's a man's man. Yeah. Some great stories in there too, Russ. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked him about the Giroux thing. Um, it was on my list, but you know, you decided to jump out of order, which was you know typical of you. That's what I do. You, you like to cause chaos and wreak havoc with the uh, planned questions that I have. Um, but uh, but no, you, it was great. You actually jumped on one that I wanted to, which was the pucks. So listen, oh, well, hey, hey. there's our trade off. See that? It's- good um but uh it was it was great to hear him explain the whole drew thing and so it was legit and and just you know i didn't really dive into you know the media perspective of it i figured i would save it for now um what it was for us i was one of the first guys waiting outside the locker room to walk in as this is happening and there's maybe i mean you've been down there right so there's maybe when they open the double doors there's maybe room for, you know, two or three wide media members to walk in. And so I was in that first row of people walking in and it was happening right there. As soon as I opened the doors, Pronger and Giroux were standing right there. Mm-hmm. You know, Pronger was going off to the, uh, uh, um, the workout room, which is to the left. And, and Giroux was going down towards where the shower area was, which is to the right. Um, and as we walked in and we caught the very end of it and that's when there was a little bit of, you know, loud voices going on between the two of them. And of course that became a story. Um, but as you heard Pronger explain it and he was very honest about it. He's like, listen, he's like, you know, what am I going to do? It's not like I'm going to walk up to the guy and put my arm around him and, <laughs> and, you know, and say, Hey, this is what we have to do better. Like he was, he was controlling the room and that's what Prongs did all the time. 
he held everybody accountable. And he talks about it. He talked about it significantly um, in this interview about how, about how like he always knew that he was at a certain standard and that he, you know, we were as media and fans, we were going to hold him to that standard. And so therefore, if he was going to be up, up at that level, he needed to have his teammates match him. Um, and that's what was great about him. And that's what made him so much fun to cover. I have to be honest because, you know, some, some guys, their, um, their reputation precedes them a little bit. And, and in his case, the vibe that I got from him is I, I can understand why a young player would be intimidated by him. Uh, not only from a – I mean, the first thing is the physicality, right? There's, there's the guy's just physique. There's the fact that he is as big of a man as he is. And the idea to me of Claude Giroux as a young player – you know, standing his ground on wanting to be shown a little bit more respect. And you talk about, you know, the differences in, in the generations and the way that players go about, you know, communicating with each other and with coaches and everything that actually, you know, I think there's a little bit more respect for Claude Giroux that, that comes out of that, not only from Pronger's, you know, perspective, but I think for anybody who has met these guys or has talked to these guys that, you know, that's, that's a, a tough spot to be in as a young player. And the fact that he was willing to go up to him and, and in his own way express that he was unhappy with something was, you know, I think kind of impressive. And I think the fact that Pronger was able to, you know, meet him on his level, meet him at, at the way that he wanted to be communicated with. I mean, I think that's a pretty admirable quality. And again, it talks, you know, it speaks to the ability that Pronger had as a captain to kind of, you know, adapt the message I think would be a pretty fair way to to say it uh, to the locker room to know the audience. Um, but there are certain things that, you know, Pronger, I think, was reported on consistently, you know, kept the message uh, delivery similar across his career. And it rubbed some people the wrong way, absolutely. But at the end of the day, the man won a Stanley Cup. He was a captain wherever he played. And, and he was, where do you put him in the all-time ranks of defensemen? Is he, is he in a top? six a top seven for you is he top 10 like where does where does Chris Pronger rank for you well I've never really thought about it I never really kind of analyzed it and said I would put this I mean obviously I guess Bobby Orr's got to be number one right um but he's got to be top 10 I mean I, I would really have to you know you put me on the spot with this I'm gonna have to think about it a little bit just to kind of figure out you know what that list is but we can say easily top 10 though well, I mean, yeah, he was he was the most dominant defensive player um, of, of of my lifetime, I think. I mean, there were some guys, there were some defensemen who were better offensive defensemen than him mm-hmm. um, in my in my lifetime. But he was a player who could do it on both ends, and he was just nasty. I mean, he was a nasty physical player in an era where that was how the game was played. So. You know, you combine the fact that he was able to put up 50-point seasons, that he was a defensive stalwart in his own end, and he was fearless and, in, and was intimidating on the ice and commanded the room off the ice. You know, he took three different teams. He took an Edmonton team that was nowhere close to being a Stanley Cup contender to a Stanley Cup final, Game 7. He took an Anaheim team that was ready to win but was missing that piece to a Stanley Cup championship. And then he took a Flyers team that was lacking the, the leadership that he provided and brought them to a Stanley Cup final. I mean, 
you know, we, we, you know we, we didn't dive into a lot of the troubles he ran into early in his career. He was in a bar brawl in Hartford. Um, you know, he had a, a DUI situation. Uh, he, wasn't, he talked about how he wasn't quite, you know, ready to be the captain at the beginning in St. Louis. And so, the, you know, those, those first several years of his career were kind of tumultuous. But once he left St. Louis, I think that's when he knew who, you know, how to, how to do it the right way. And if you look from that 05-06 till the time that he got hurt in Philadelphia, that stretch, that was some of the best defensive hockey. And he had already won Hart and Norris in St. Louis. So he won the Hart Trophy and the Norris Trophy while he was with the Blues. That's how good of a player he was there. It was just not the greatest environment for him. Um, but then you put him, you know, in Edmonton where he's the certainly the best player in Anaheim where he's the best defenseman for sure. I mean, they had a couple of great forwards there um, and then comes to the flyers and he's the best player. It, it's, you know, guys don't normally do that. You don't normally see superstar hall of fame players get moved around as much as Chris Pronger did. He got traded for four times in his career. Um, that doesn't usually happen, but to see him go where and everywhere he went, he had success. And so that tells you, you know, where he is. So I think that he's certainly top 10. If I had to think about it, probably top five, probably top. Wow. 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 Well, again, I mean, you're comparing different eras, right? I mean, and that's, you know, how do you think this gets hard? How do you you compare, how do you compare Pronger to say Paul Coffey, for example, Coffey was a terrible defensive defenseman. He really was, especially towards the end of his career. He was better in the earlier part of his career, but he didn't have to be a good defensive defenseman because Edmonton scored, you know, all those points. And you had Gretzky putting up 215 points in a season, and Coffey was, you know, the most prolific offensive defenseman ever. So, but how do you compare that kind of defenseman to what Chris Pronger was. I don't yeah, think I mean you, I think I, I think, think you, you look at I think you look at the years that the guy played and you look at how the game changed in his career. You look at, at pre-lockout versus post-lockout and that was a kind of a line of demarcation for certain players. I mean, we've talked in the past uh, I think it was with Mike Knubel, right? When Darian Hatcher came up. Yeah. And now Hatcher had some had some injuries that that probably slowed him down, but you saw a guy who was a physically imposing defenseman who pre-lockout was thought of very highly highly enough to be pursued by the flyers and and was a a brute force kind of defenseman and then post lockout was rendered effectively useless by by virtue of his lack of speed and acceleration and lateral quickness and and it took him out of the game whereas chris pronger again hulking presence but a very i would say a better skater obviously and a a more dynamic ish sort of player right he was able to adapt and adaptability is is huge and availability by the way is also huge being able to uh you know your team being able to rely on you and know that you're gonna be in the lineup um one other thing i wanted to say about the Giroux thing before we get too far away from it um what i thought thought was a, a we didn't really dive into it more with chris but what i thought was really telling was when he said Giroux called him mm-hmm. as a captain and said you know hey i got this situation what do you think of it and Pronger said, I told him, well, you know what to do. Yeah. In other words, you know, handle it the way that I handled you. And, and, the same, and the same thing, you know. So the fact that Giroux respects him enough to call him and say, I have to handle a situation, you know, internally. Um, and asking Pronger for advice on how to do it really lets you know what they all thought of Pronger as a leader. 
and and it says a lot about Giroux as a leader as well mm-hmm. that you know yeah he may not be the guy who's coming out and being real bombastic and and again gregarious with us but he has a real good grasp on that locker room and it's why he's the captain of the team and I keep and you know Pronger pointed it out he said it and I've been saying for a long time just because you have the C on your jersey it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be this big outspoken personality mm-hmm. that you can lead in a different way. And, you know, all these people who want to say, take the C off of Giroux, it's asinine because he doesn't have to be the captain to us. He has to be the captain to the locker room and that locker room likes having him as a captain. So I think that that's, that was a real telling thing that, you know, it was a little sidebar that Pronger mentioned, but I think it really explains a lot about Claude Giroux. So if I told you that I did a little bit of digging and I found out uh, the very likely situation that led to that phone call, what would you say? How, how can you... F- <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, what could- no, I wanted to know how you would feel. I, I'd be stunned, but go ahead. Yeah, you know, be stunned, I didn't. Um, so anyway, <laughs> let's, let's move on. So um, there were a couple of, of things. I, that's why, you know, I thought it was interesting. It's, it's the reason that I brought up trying to compare him and Mike Richards, because I think both of those guys have gotten tagged, as I mentioned in the interview, like I think they both kind of gotten uh, painted with that, that broad stroke of, okay, well, this guy isn't a, uh, an extroverted, you know, screaming on the bench kind of guy. It's more of like a lead by example. And maybe you need to have somebody who's more outspoken or whatever. Right. Well, let's think of it like this too, Anthony, when people come up with who they think the captain should be or who they think the captain will be after Claude Giroux moves on or, or whatever, the name that comes up is hopefully the Selkie winner this year, Sean Couturier. Sean Couturier strike you as this extroverted, over-the-top personality when he speaks to the media? No, but he's gotten better. He has. I, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I, and I'll tell you from when I, you know, I was there when he was 18 mm-hmm. and first came to the, onto the team – and from where he was then to where he is now is night and day. I mean, he's far more communicative and talkative and vocal now than he ever was. That sure. said, he's never going to be – no one's ever going to be pronger, but he's never going to be – he's not going to be Keith Primo. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's not going to be Jake Voracek, for that matter, as far as the way he talks publicly. So – you're right. I mean, he is going to yeah. be a quiet, it's going to be a quiet leader. Yes. I will applaud. I think I said this at the end of last year, but it was the last game last season. I stayed behind to ask him a question about the coaching search. And I didn't put anything out because I said it can be on or off. And he didn't, he didn't say which way he wanted it to go. But the fact that like he stayed back with somebody who's in their first year around the team. And he, he talked to me for quite a while about like what, in theory, he thinks the team would look for in a coach. That spoke volumes to me, which I thought was, you know, really nice. So, uh, anyway, let's let's keep going here. Um, there's there's something that I I want to talk about that's not the interview. Is there anything else in the interview that you really wanted to hit? The Brizgalov thing was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> that wouldn't happen without if he were here. Yeah, it's it makes you wonder the big what, what 2012 if, right? is. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, yes, that's the first year after they trade Richards and Carter. And they went to the playoffs and beat Pittsburgh in the first round. And then they got beat by New Jersey in the second round. And, you know, uh, the, the Kings, I'll tell you, they, you know, from talking to John Stevens, who I was close with when he was a coach, they felt 
in 2012 that they were going to play the Flyers in the Stanley Cup final going into the playoffs. Like they honestly felt like we're going to get there. Even though they were an eight seed, they were a lot better than an eight seed because of the way they had been playing for a long time uh, prior to that. They felt that they were going to match up with Philly. And the Flyers fell apart against Jersey because of the relationship between the goalie and the the team. Um, It really makes me wonder if Chris Pronger's healthy and he's able to control Brzgalov, who was a very athletic goalie and and a good goalie at times when he wasn't going off the rails, would that team have reached the final in 2012? And would they have beaten LA? I mean, like that's a, that's a, to me, that's one of the great what ifs um, of this franchise. Like if, if, if Pronger doesn't get hurt in 2012, because they were, they beat, they beat Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh was the best team in the Eastern conference and the flyers beat them pretty handily. And then they had the meltdown against New Jersey. But if they beat the Devils, they probably reach the final, and then what happens? So, like, to me, that was to hear Pronger say that, I don't think he would have said what he said if he didn't think that that team had that ability. You know what I'm saying? Like, if it was yeah. just – if it was just, oh, well, you know, yeah, they were barely a playoff team. They maybe would have won a round or whatever. He probably doesn't come out and say the things that he says about, you know, managing Brzgalov. But he had to think that that team was – Was talented. And was talented enough to, to go far. Yeah. So that's why I thought that that was something that was really telling in this, in this interview. It's now been back-to-back weeks where we've had to break people's hearts all over again, right? Where there have been the ultimate what-ifs. I feel like that's almost what this whole series of, of uh, you know, the NHL pause episodes where we've gone back and, and done these interviews. It just feels like so many what-ifs. If one thing breaks the other way, you know, what ends up happening. And, and the Briz thing, I think even going into the interview with Pronger isn't something that we had considered, but you're right. Like the fact that he brought it up and that was an unprompted kind of question, you know, is, is pretty interesting, pretty telling. Um, I do want to move on to something that happened in the past week that I found absolutely irritating once again. I think it's actually two. Um, I'm trying to remember when the, when the one thing happened. Uh, and, and if it happened since we did the Danny Breer interview, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, there was the story that came out about Oscar Lindblom finishing cancer treatment, which was, um, I don't have a good way to put it. I, I wrote it that it was reckless to speculate on that or to put a headline on something like that. So then I reached out and I, I got a flyer source to, you know, confirm to me that, in fact, that that report, that headline was wrong. It was incorrect. And that Oscar Lindblom still has cancer treatment ahead of him. And it was interesting because I started seeing my face pop up on like Reddit and on Facebook groups that I'm not usually part of. And I saw it going around and like people that I've never heard of on Twitter tweeting it. And so it was kind of interesting to see that happen. But like, I have to be honest, I I thought it was really upsetting to see um, a headline that stated that you know he had gotten over cancer and that he'd completed his treatments which was factually inaccurate and the bigger problem is and i've brought this up before there are some sites that are you know what a lot of people will criticize as being like aggregators where there's a small reporter there's a bit of speculation and they they turn that into you know a, a bit of a salacious headline or a slightly misleading headline in order to get clicks in order to get 
revenue through the ad networks that they embed on their site. That's how some of them get paid and, and generate money. And it's how they grow a big following on Facebook. But that to me was, was careless. Um, I didn't know what your feeling on it was. I know that we kind of got back and forth. You thought I was a little bit overboard in it because the, uh, the story itself didn't say it, but the headline did. Yeah. I mean, so in that instance, um, I, I kind of felt like when you read the story, you can see that the writer, whoever it was, and it was an anonymous writer because they don't put their, they didn't put a, a writer's name on the story, but that the writer actually had accurate information in the story. It wasn't, it was not wrong. It was the headline that was misleading. And so while it could just as easily have been done, you know, in a manner with the intention of being a clickbait um, to get you to read the story, and that would be awful and horrible and terrible, as you, you know, indicated, um, it could just as easily have been whoever posted the story didn't really read it thoroughly enough and just kind of did it a once over and, you know, in a quick read, mistook it for what it was right? Um, and then put the headline up. Now, I, if I recall correctly, didn't they try and reach out to you about- They did. They reached yeah. out to me when, while my power was out. Yeah, yeah. And it was, so, I, think, I think it was two or three days removed from, right. from that. Because, but, and they wanted, to, they wanted to make sure that they I think had they wanted. Correct. I think they wanted to try to CYA at that point. Uh, well, and maybe, and maybe And maybe it's, you know, fixing the headline or whatever, but, I, you know. But what I'm saying is, is so that in that instance- that doesn't mean that you're wrong. I don't think that you're wrong. I think that there are sites that are notorious for this. But I think in that one particular instance, there was a possibility that existed because the story itself was accurate. Mm-hmm. That it was it just- was using, By the way, it was using stuff from over a month ago. I think it was using stuff from April. Right. Which, which was weird. Like that to me was part of the other problem with it was that the information was from a Philadelphia Inquirer article from I think it was April 23rd or something like that where um, Brent Flair had talked about, or Brent Flair had talked about the, um, about Oscar, you know, getting ready for his final treatments. Um, it was just weird timing. And then when the headline came out, it was bad. And this is the, the bigger problem I have with it is, the headline goes out, and you know how Facebook works. That article goes out, I would bet you 10% of the people read it, and the rest oh, yeah. saw it and were like, hey, just- with everything going on, that's a great bit of news. And that spread like wildfire. And my immediate thought was, uh, I feel terrible for Oscar Lindblom and his family because inevitably that's going to get back and they're going to start getting texts about, oh my God, is Oscar cancer free? Did he beat it? Is it all over? And they're going to be like, well, what are you talking about? And then this is going to let you know, and then it just kind of plays out. So I, I kind of felt like somebody had to set the record straight and I was surprised that at that point in the day, nobody had. So anyway, we got it straightened out. Um, it does seem like things are trending in the right direction. So that's, that's good news. He's not out of the woods yet. When he is, we'll report on it. Obviously, the hope is that things get better. That- yeah, but if you compare that to, to the story from prior to it, where I got caught reading that Facebook, reading that Dave Isaac story through Facebook, yeah. which was, again, an aggregated story where they With a mailbag. Yep, they cherry picked his mailbag and made a quote about Oscar Limbaugh. See, it was a bit, seemed like it was about Nolan Patrick. That was bad. And then was you bad. got a, and then you got another and then one. I have this one. This is the which other is, one. 
which is but also bad. That, that the NHL isn't returning till September, which put me on another Twitter tirade where it was like I had to put a thread out. And it's like, this is why people need to be more careful about where they're getting their information from. So let me walk people through this really quickly. Some people might have followed this. Some people might not have seen it at all. So we're just putting it out there. So I started getting, you know, tweets and DMs that were say, you know, about, oh my God, is it true that hockey's not coming back until September? And I was like, no, that's... That's nonsensical. Now, you and I have talked about in the past that like in a worst case scenario, if there's a COVID outbreak, if there's some kind of outbreak with, with a team where you talk about like 10 guys testing positive or something like that, or one of the hub cities ends up becoming like a massive hotbed and now all of a sudden you have to push it back. Okay, worst case scenario, you might be looking at September, but that's not what's being planned. So there was a writer from the Montreal Gazette, Stu Cohen, who wrote a mailbag. And in his mailbag, he threw, it wasn't a throwaway line. It's like halfway through. And this is what he said. The NHL is hoping to start official training camps in mid-July at two hub cities that will be selected to play host to the 2014 playoff format. But don't be surprised if the training camps don't start until August, giving players most of the summer off apart from training with the playoffs starting in September and running through early November. That would mean next season wouldn't start until January 1st, kicking off with winter classic, which drove me nuts because we know for a fact that that is something the league does not want to do. So I kind of pointed that out in this little little anger thread that I had. But among the issues with that include the fact that, okay, phase three, which is when training camp is supposed to start, has been confirmed by the league to not happen before July 10th. The idea, the working assumption now, is that July 10th, July 11th, sometime in there, teams are going to be expected, if all goes well, to start training camp, to move into phase three. Now, executive uh, director of the NHLPA, Donald Fear, has come out. And remember, back when the, the nationally televised thing with uh, Gary Bettman talking about phase two, phase three, the, the lottery, the whole thing, he said that he thought it would be about three weeks for the players to get to fitness. The NHLPA executive director actually was the one who came out and said, you know what, it, it might be two weeks. It could actually be less than the three weeks. It depends on... How many guys get onto the ice during phase two, which, by the way, started uh, the day that we're recording, June 8th. Uh, it depends on what their fitness is. It's entirely possible that it could only take them two weeks. Even in a worst-case scenario, if you're saying, all right, camps are going to start on July 10th or July 11th, and you fast-forward three weeks, that lines up with August 1st. And that's when I would expect they probably look at that week for starting the round-robin games for the top four seeds in each uh, conference, and that's probably about when they're going to start the games for the play-in round of the postseason. So again, September doesn't make sense. Um, the bigger part, and this is the one that was glaring and that I think you and I have both heard things on, and there, there's another person in the industry that I've gone back and forth with who's got very good league sources who has been ahead of uh, almost every blue check mark. That's our friend over at NHL Rumors Daily, NRD. Uh, they... There has been this idea out there that the league does not want to start with the Winter Classic. The Winter Classic is in Minnesota. It has been talked about that the league might have to take a break or look at taking a break from mid-December to mid-January if that's when everybody thinks that the second wave of COVID-19 could hit. So the idea that in the middle of a possible break, the league is going to start their season with their biggest game with social distancing measures still in place to a half empty at best stadium to me is nonsensical. 
And that to me is like an even bigger part of why this whole throwaway line that got blown up into the NHL is going to return until September breaking news is total BS. Your thoughts. Well, I mean, you know, I think that you went on a nice little crusade um, and you're not wrong. Um, but I was like, when you say you're not wrong, you don't say you're right. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I I don't necessarily know if I would have gone on to such a big, you know, push on social media over a cheese ball Facebook story, but Hey, more power to you, my friend. You're not wrong. Um, and by the way, it was, it was the same site that ran with the headline from this other, this other site that did the Lindblom story. It was this site that was the one that amplified the signal times 30 because they have at least one Facebook group with a couple hundred thousand followers and then multiple team affiliated uh, pages on Facebook that also have in excess of a hundred thousand. This is the problem is that a small thing. And by the way, I'm not saying Stu Cohen's an idiot or that he doesn't have any kind of sources. I'm merely suggesting that a bit of speculation that's in the middle of a mailbag is not the same thing as somebody coming out and saying league sources confirm or league sources say the NHL is going to return in September. No. And and you're right. I mean, it's not wrong. What you're saying makes perfect sense. Um, So, but I mean, I, you know, there's going to be a lot of bad stories that make it out into the world today. And I think that, you know, while I give you credit for, breaking it down smartly and, and providing uh, a real intelligent angle to it. I, I also think that you're, you know, you're fighting a losing battle because there's going to, there's always more that we don't see mm-hmm. that are out there on Facebook that are wrong, that are misleading, that are, you know, fake news. <laughs> um, and we're not going to be able to correct them all. So, the, you know, yeah, you know, kudos for trying to get to what you can, but keep in mind that you're, sometimes it's just a, uh, it's a, it's, it's, you know, you're tilting at losing battle. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hear you. So that was another thing that I just wanted to clear up. And I think we've probably held people for quite a bit of time here. Don't we have some five-star oh. reviews, Russ? Oh, my friend, we don't just have one, not two, <laughs> three new five-star reviews. And I just want to point out, Anthony, that we've had a plethora of five-star reviews at this point since the NHL uh, went on break. What was that back on March 12th? 12th. We've had quite a few five-star reviews flowing through, and it, it, I have to say it feels pretty good. Yeah, three months makes, worth. And it, and I, know it makes, I know it makes you smile. So let's start with one that came out the same day that the Danny Briere interview dropped. And this one's from Lee C. Danny Briere interview, five stars. The Danny Briere interview was very good. His interview with Jeff Mark and Elliot Friedman on Sportsnet last week was also very good. Your interview was longer and more topics and stories. Great job, guys. Continued great success with your podcast. Well, thanks, Lee. And, you know, look, look, I think Merrick and, and Elliot do and a phenomenal job on that 31 Thoughts podcast. Um, We're going to catch them, don't worry. No, but it, it, it is. It's, it's one of the best um, podcasts that are out there. But... Uh, the fact that uh, we had Danny for longer than they did and had more stories, uh, that's good. Good for pretty, us. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Uh, next one. TK is king of the nerds. Five stars. I miss hockey. 
I've seen Snow the Goalie on Twitter before, but never really listened to the podcast. Love being able to hear about all about the Flyers. Overall, this John is pretty dope. Well, thank you. I think you're pretty dope, TK, King of the Nerds. I, I think that's our first John. That might be. If, I, if we go back through all the reviews, I think that's the first one who called us a John. You so, think we're, so we're totally Philly now. Well, look, this is what I can do. Hold on. Let me do a control F really quick. <laughs> John. Yep. That is, in fact, hashtag confirmed. That is the first time that the podcast has been referred to as John. So we're, we're, offici- we're officially Philly now. Now we get to my favorite uh, five-star review. I love them all. And a big thank you again to TK and to uh, Lisi. But this one, this one sounds like one of us wrote it, but I know I didn't. And I don't think Anthony, I, based on the way that I know Anthony writes, this would have been seven paragraphs uh, with half sentences each. So this is definitely not written by Anthony. Five stars. This is from RVD. <gasps> Rob Van Dam, 34.91. Five stars. The best Flyers content you'll find. Get ready for this, Anthony. Sit down. Hold on to your seat. I listen to a few different Flyers podcasts, and I can honestly say that Snow the Goalie is unequivocally the best. Anthony and Russ are a tremendous duo and work so well off each other. They provide insightful and behind-the-scenes information that only they can provide. It's an interesting conversation, whether it's the podcast, the Press Row Show, or my personal favorite, the No Pucks Given Wells Fargo Center (laughs) Consultants Food Review. They have the best guests from current and former players to current and former coaches and executives of the Flyers. The work they have done during the NHL pause has been tremendous. They have really gone the extra mile to keep the show just as interesting, if not more, during the pause. Keep up the great work. Oh, yes! I I love that... (laughs) Love that he went for the food review. No pucks given. No pucks given. I, I can't wait till it's back. <laughs> it's going to be a while before. It's going to be a while until we get back to no pucks given. But I have to tell you, <laughs> we had some stuff planned for it, and I'm really excited for it. Uh, yeah. By the way, speaking of, oh. speaking of stuff that we have plans for, yeah. I'm going to throw this out on the show. I don't care, right? Let's be crazy. So there was an idea that you kind of came up with. Oh, this one. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only is it brilliant for, for as far as I'm concerned, as a one-shot deal here this summer, but I think once the team comes back for the playoffs, since we're not going to be able to be in the arena with them. Not, you don't know that yet. It's not going to be here. Yeah, Philadelphia well, is not a hub city. Maybe we'll get sent there. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, yeah, Who yeah knows? I could see that happening. Yeah, the maestro is going to pay for us to, to go to uh, Columbus for a month, right? Maybe it won't be the maestro. Continue. Well, will, will Nancy be okay with you being gone for a month? <laughs> Sometimes it's better to just go and apologize than to ask for permission and get no. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, anyway, assuming we don't get sent to uh, the city where the Flyers hub is located. Um, m- my thought was, is that it would be a really cool thing since we're doing these through zoom now to allow for it to be almost like a, almost like a, I don't want to call it like a call in show, but like after the game's over for us to sit here and talk about the game, have people join us. We'll put the link out, right. Mm-hmm. And have people come in, they sit in, you know, they'll sit in the queue We'll pop them in, and they get to be part of the show, and we'll talk to each person for a minute or two and talk about the game, talk about what they want to talk about, and really kind of break down 
the Flyers games in the playoffs as they go along. And I think it's a great idea. I think it's fun. We'll have a fun one we'll do here this summer before everything starts with fans, you know, just have a, a fan uh, version of, of Snow the Goalie. But I think that really ultimately when it gets to it, when we get to the playoffs, I think it's a really great thing um, for us to be able to continue to interact with, with the Flyers fans and really kind of talk about the game since we won't be able to really do a press row show, since we won't be on press row, assuming we're not sent there. Um, it would give us an opportunity to still have that kind of format, which we usually have live from the game. Uh, maybe not live during the game, but you know, as like a post-game kind of endeavor. So I think that that's something that we- It's possible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Zoom has like the, uh, the webinar thing. Right. I actually did one of those, yes, yeah, it was yesterday. I did one with uh, Spike Eskin from Wright's Ricky Sanchez podcast and their Sixers writer, Sixers Adam, and uh, we were watching the bowling tournament because I guess uh, Bill had been the, uh, the guest on the latest RTRS. And uh, yeah, we watched, we talked, and a guy hopped on who had a bowling podcast. We just popped, you know, let him in and talked, and it was great. I'm, I'm, I'm a little upset that you didn't suggest me being what? that I was a varsity what? that I was a varsity bowler. I lettered in bowling in high the school. Point, the point of that <laughs> webinar live stream telecast thing was to get people to watch. Okay. All right. Oh, so that's why they put you and on. That was why. I'm just so I'm so delightful, engaging, charismatic, you know. Um but I could have spoken about the sport like with, with authority. Unlike yeah, but you. I was listen. I was talking about the eight pin that uh, and how the ten pin on the first lane just would not go down. It was, I think, the the number one pin to uh, to stay up on that first lane. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Here's the thing. Did you discuss we, the oil on the lane? You know, we didn't. We talked about the one handed technique versus the two handed technique, and uh, I think, listen, the two handed technique. There is, there's listen, no discussion. There's no discussion. The two the two handed technique to me needs to be under investigation. The same way that the PGA outlawed the belly putters for Adam Scott. Remember, he was like the best putter in the world. And then yeah. they're like, no, dude, you can't have an anchored, uh, you know, putter. You have to putt like the rest of us. I, when you think about the physics that go behind the two-hand bowling technique versus one, it's unfair. Revolutions. Well, well think about Revolutions, it. you're talking about the power yeah, behind it. Like, but I'll say this, and, and I'm a left-handed bowler, right? I'm left-handed. Okay? Whoa. So when we used to bowl, there would be 10 bowlers, five on our, you know, on our team and five on the team that we're bowling against. Mm -hmm. And I was usually the only lefty. Sometimes there would be one other right on the other team or whatever, but most of the guys are right-handed and you're bowling three matches in team bowling. You're bowling three matches. And so everybody's wearing out the right hand side of the, of the lane. Sure. And so as you get towards the third game, you know, you're trying to throw the ball over your mark and it's not hitting the pocket. And the reason uh, it's not is because the oil has dried up. Uh, but if you're left-handed, if you're left-handed and you're the only left-handed person, the oil is still there for you. So I would usually do better in the third game of, uh, of a match because of that. And my coach was savvy enough, not that we were any good, but my coach was savvy enough to put me further down. Cause usually your better bowlers bowl late later. Yeah. It would, I was never the anchor because we had a guy who was just awesome, but I used to bowl four in the third game because the left-hand side still had the oil. Whereas in the first two games, I would bowl two. So okay. I was the second bowler in the first two games, but I would bowl four in the, in the third game for that very reason. Wow. We had bowling talk on the podcast. This is, <laughs> it's only taken until June for us to, to get there. And, uh, 
<laughs> well, listen, here, here's what we've got going on. We, uh, we made the announcement. I think it was actually during the, it might've been the, it was on Twitter. It wasn't on, I know that some people thought that Iron Mike Keenan was going to be on the episode today. We had tech issues. So, you know, we brought him Chris Pronger, not a, not a bad replacement by any right. stretch. I think we're still trying to iron down some logistics with, uh, with I, te- I texted him back. I'm just waiting to hear back from him. So, uh, yeah. if, if that doesn't happen, we might just have a normal episode next week. It would be, it would, I think, break the streak of guests, but there's also the possibility that Anthony Sanfilippo goes into his magic bag, his magic Rolodex and just pulls somebody out of thin air. Nothing makes me happier than the Thursday or Friday text where Anthony calls me. I can't answer cause he always calls at my kid's bedtime. And then he, he texts me big news. Snow the goalie news. Call me when you can. Which obviously I stop reading my kids a story. I run out of the room and I have to know what's up. Um, so we'll find out. We'll see. There's a possibility we have a guest next week. If not, it'll be a normal episode. I think at that point we'll be able to react to some of the phase two stuff. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like anything came out today from the Flyers about which players might have reported down to Voorhees. But from a few days ago, GM Chuck Fletcher did say that Voorhees was going to open up Skate Zone was going to open uh, on Monday. June 8th so we we don't have any reports from down there obviously Anthony and I are not down there the media is not allowed down there so uh you know it's it's a uh it's a black site at this point right it's a uh you know it's a super secret covert operation to get in and out so uh hopefully by next week we'll have some more news I did see that there were a couple of things going around with the NHL about again testing and about the safety of of the players and their families and still trying to figure that part of this equation out so the thought, I think, is by next week, we'll have a little bit more information to riff on and to talk about. And hopefully, no aggregating sites are going to go and take uh, you know, an, an innocuous statement and turn it into a salacious headline. We'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe not. Who knows? Anthony, anything else you want to say to the people before we head out this week? It's been a pleasure, Russ. As always, it's always a good time to, to sit here and, and talk hockey with you. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure we'll have a guest next week. Anthony, I, I will just say, I, I think it's been a joy oh. this week. So uh, anyway, don't forget, go follow us on Twitter at SnowTheGoalie, at AntSanPhilly, at JoyOnBroad. By the way, those are always listed in the description of the episode. You can follow us over on Facebook, facebook.com slash SnowTheGoalie. And, uh, oh, that's right. The interviews, they're going to be going up this week over on YouTube. They'll be on the Crossing Broad channel, so youtube.com slash Crossing Broad. There's actually a Snow the Goalie playlist from video guy Craig. Big thank you to Craig. We love him tremendously. He does all the stuff for us. So uh, kudos to Craig. And uh, don't forget to let your friends and family, anybody you know that's a Flyers fan, know about Snow the Goalie, the only Flyers podcast, the People's Podcast, Players Podcast, Presidential Podcast, the Pronger Cast. Let them know about it. Make sure they subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, wherever they get their podcasts. And of course, leave a five-star review over on Facebook. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll read it here on the show. And so for Anthony at Ant San Philly, I'm Russ at Joy on Broad. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.